0: You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Hey, people, how are you doing? We are live. Are listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast and my name is Matt Phillips. I'm the creator of One Chat Live and as always this episode is being recorded live on a Tuesday at eight o'clock on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. Um, you may have noticed that I'm really trying to talk slower today and it feels totally unnatural to me because I've listened back to the last the latest episodes um, and I'm just amazed at how fast I talk. So to me, it feels really unnatural, but I'm doing it on purpose, and I'm hoping that I'll be more impressed with the feedback. Anyway, so here we are. Um, last week in part two of this month's focus on the hip, and um, the topic was buttock pain. In other words, posterior hip pain, but that was just far too long to fit into the YouTube title, so we'll call it buttock pain. Um, and we uh, had the pleasure of spending an hour with special guest, Dr. Sarah Rollins, talking about the many different potential causes for pain in the buttock region um, including piriformis syndrome but also sciatica, uh, glute medius minimus tendinopathies, proximal hamstring tendinopathies and more. Uh, Tonight uh, we're very happy to say in part three that Dr Rollins returns and this time with colleague sports physio Ema Acton to discuss rehab for some of these conditions. Um, as always, if you listen to the podcast, um, people are joining us live uh, because you can do that if you come along to the YouTube channel. And if you do come along to the YouTube channel, then I can bring your questions up on the screen. For example, Nikki Mansfield is here in the house and I can bring that up on the screen. Nikki Mansfield says, how do you do? you fellow people squeezes? People squeezes. That's a nice way of putting it. Uh, really looking forward to this one. Going to be so useful. How emotive are you, Nikki? You're fired up tonight. Um, glenn murphy is in the house as well hello boys and girls dialects happening tonight are incredible and then we've also got gary benson founder of the sports therapy association is here evening everyone looking forward to this episode says gary uh, becky carroll is here says evening all so it's a wonderful way of listening to the podcast and you want to spend some time with fellow people squeezes as Nikki mansfield puts it then come along on a th- on, on a tuesday there's no contracts. We're not going to sign you in to come along every single Tuesday. But if you see a topic you like the look of and you want to spend some time with fellow soft tissue therapists and get the chance to ask questions directly to our guests, then all you need to do is go along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel on a Tuesday. Um, I just realized I've sped up my, my as I'm getting old. I'm speaking faster. Maybe I'm thinking there's less time, not enough time left. I need to slow down. Nikki Mansfield says, don't worry, Matt, you talk in slow-mo compared to me. True. Yeah, if I compare myself to you, Nikki. Anyway, I have left our guests for tonight down in the lobby for long enough. So without further ado, I shall bring up Dr. Sarah Rollins and Ema Acton. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Markton how are you doing and Dr Sarah Rollins how are you?
1: Hello
2: good evening. Good evening again hi Matt.
0: Good to have you back two weeks in a row. Yeah
2: pleasure pleasure.
0: No the pleasure is ours um, it was I've had some wonderful questions and feedback um, and also a lot of are you doing a part twos it was quite clear last week was such a huge topic to cover that we had other things we could be talking about so the people are very pleased when I applied and said don't worry Dr Sarah's back um so thank you for doing that. I'm bringing along your partner in crime um Ema Act. Nice to see you Ema. Hello Matt.
1: Nice to see you. too. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh no, an absolute pleasure. This is this is wonderful to have two people who work together because you are even today you are working together. Well, you maybe start by telling us a little bit Ema about how you started working with Sarah and where? Yeah,
1: so um I first of all I my husband's in the military so I had to move a lot around a lot from jobs I was working in London as an ESP and then a job came up working at the regional rehab unit which I think Sarah described last week as what we do and um, that came up in 2020 um, and I, got the, I was lucky enough to get the job and get to work with Sarah which is wonderful so we run clinics together um, it's brilliant idea actually to have a doctor and a physio in a room together so that when we take turns making the diagnosis some patients are a little bit more physio some people are a little bit more medical and it's brilliant to have that those kind of you know the doctor expertise in the room so if there's something I don't recognize or that differential it's incredible to have and then I take on the management of the patients once the diagnosis has been made so it's a really nice way of kind of working together means people don't have to come back and we do it all in an hour
0: it's fantastic to hear. Mm. It's almost as if multidisciplinary care is the way forwards for patients. I mean,
1: who knew, right? Who knew? Who knew?
0: I think you should write a paper about this or something. I the future. <laughs> no, so it's wonderful. And you enjoy so much working with Dr. Sir Rollins that you're leaving, aren't you? <laughs> Sorry, I yeah. didn't dig it's that in there. there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> like I said, imagine we talked about this earlier. I wouldn't be leaving for any job other than the, the job I'm going to, because honestly, working with, sarah has definitely been the highlight of my career today and i'm not just saying this because she's in the room but no. um it's been incredible from a learning and just an enjoyment perspective as well so a very very rewarding job but yes i am on the move
0: you want tell everybody where you're off to because it is very exciting
1: yeah so i'm off to work with uh, the mclaren formula one race team as their principal physio so um yes i start that role uh my last week for the military's next week and then I'm off the following week to Bahrain. So it's a little bit of a different uh, approach so I do most of the races but then the rest of the time I'm working um, in we're setting up the high performance center clinic with another doctor in, uh, in McLaren headquarters in Woking so very exciting. Yeah. Sounds amazing. I'm not speaking to that doctor again. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I know. We should probably move on. <laughs> snappy. Yeah. yeah. No congratulations exciting. that sounds absolutely Thank amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you. And also we should mention as well that um you've played um hockey internationally as well? Uh,
1: yeah. Oh, it seems like a long time ago. Yes, I did. Um I did back in uh, I suppose yeah, so I played for Ireland for quite a few years Um while I was training, actually, as a physio in London. And I used to fly over and back and got to fly around the world with it. It was amazing. Um But Ireland, we struggled. We missed out on Olympic and world qualifications a few times and then just realised that my career, I couldn't do both. I found it very difficult to do both. I was living in England and training in Ireland. So, um yeah, in the end, I... Uh, retired and but i still play as internationally but i still played uh premiership over here for slough for years um which was wonderful so you know still played a high level but just didn't have that commitment um so yeah an enjoyable tempted... time of my
0: life right i was in. interested i didn't realize that the army has got has had quite like over 100 years of history of hockey teams as well and
1: as an army association
0: did you get involved with that or were you tempted to no so
1: you have to be an actual you have to be a serving member of the army to actually play for the army so um no i never i never got to do that but that was okay i still enjoyed my club hockey um you know traveled around the country playing that so that's good and both my brothers still play professionally actually one in belgium and one in holland so yeah so they've they're flying the flag for the family i uh bowed out early (laughs)
0: Marvelous. Right. Well, thank you again for coming along tonight. I'm really excited the fact that you do work together. Um, And we're here to talk about buttock pain or posterior hip pain. Sounds far more um, professional. Don't forget, people, if you have joined us live, then you're welcome to ask questions. We encourage it. This is a great opportunity. Um, But to start off, um, it's interesting. We were talking a bit off air. Um, There's actually a case which I believe walked through the door today, last patient, if I remember correctly who kind of fits in nicely to what we're going to talk about tonight Sarah
2: Yeah that's right so um I mean w- I think we were both sort of sitting there thinking I just can't believe this is happening so it was literally the last patient of the day and um and I kept thinking this this can't this can't this can't be right um but in fact it is a beautiful case and um I think what we we'll, what the best thing to do is we've we've got an idea that we'd like to have a little think about the anatomy again just as a refresher and then um, I think we'll dive in with the case um, and maybe present the history and how we got to like um, make the diagnosis, essentially, and take it from there.
0: That sounds amazing. The anatomy was so popular um, mm-hmm. last week. People have been saying they've been playing it back and following it and listening to it. So that would be very well received.
2: Great. So should we dive in?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All right. So... Um, I mean, we started with a little taster last week, so we did, wanted to um, just uh, remind ourselves what we meant by the bum, uh, by the so buttock. And uh, remember, we were talking about the top of the iliac crest um, to the ASIS, which is that bit at the front of the pelvis that you can feel um, just on both sides, what people often call their hip bone, but obviously, is the front of their pelvis. Down to the greater trochanter, which is the, the side of your femur, uh, to the gluteal crease, um, so basically the bit at the bottom of your bum, uh, then up the midline um, and uh, then back um, across to the Iliac Crest. Um, so that's where your buttock is. Um, and then we've got to think about what's inside that area. Um, and um, so uh, I'm going to run through that now just again. And then I'm going to talk about because I, I, I was desperate to tell you about the, the exciting muscles in the bum last week. We never quite managed it. So. We've got our big glute max muscle. So fantastic, a powerful um, uh, hip extensor. That's your, the big muscle on the back of your bum, which attaches to the iliac crest uh, and then goes down to the side of your femur um, and inserts uh, there and also on the um, uh, iliotibial band tract down the side of your leg. So a very powerful hip ex- um, ex- um, extender. Uh, and then beneath that, we've got two smaller gluteal muscles. So we've got glute min and glute med. Um, and so really easy to remember them all because you've got a big one, a little one and one in the middle. Um, and then deep to that, we then have our deep gluteal space and the muscles in there. So we've got some smaller muscles. We've got piriformis, which I doubt anyone uh, has failed to um, uh, hear the name of um, because it's got its little syndrome um, called after it. Um, and then we have uh, three small muscles uh, that go to the back of the um, or go to the side of the back of the hip um, and they are called the gemelli so you've got a superior one and an inferior one and in between them you have obturator internus and interestingly they all join together so obturator internus is very much a tendon in the back of the bottom uh, uh, yeah in the buttock Um, and so the gemelli actually join together with that uh, tendon and then attach to the hip and um, what's really interesting about uh, piriformis is that it comes from inside the pelvis um and so it starts um actually um rather than being sort of thinking about it it's actually starting in the bottom area it starts uh, actually on the front side of the sacrum and goes to to the hip and um the other one that does that is so obturator internus starts on the inside of the pelvis as well so if i show you my little pelvis again so obturator internus is is actually this one here but it actually that's not we don't you wouldn't see it from the outside because that's obturator externus is actually um, is on is visible from the outside. So actually obturator internus, I don't know if you can see it very well, is actually on the inside here. And from there, it then passes out through and around the back of the pelvis here. Like this. Um, and so it goes around a corner, essentially. And there's a little, there's a little bursa here just to allow it to move smoothly. So there's a muscular part on the inside. And then there's a tendon that comes out and then passes to the hip joint like this. And the reason why I find that really interesting is because it's actually really close to the pelvic floor on the inside. And so we think about how, whether, you know, uh, childbirth and problems with the pelvic floor can actually interfere or cause problems with the hip. Um, I don't know that we have enough evidence for that but it makes sense in my head that the pelvic floor which is this bit on the bottom here across here which is uh, we've divided it up into three three bits but actually is just a a platform uh um on the and, and is, the anatomy of that is also extremely interesting but perhaps for another day um but obturator internus is just next door to it just over here so you've got pelvic floor obturator internus and obturator internus is going off to the hip joint And the piriformis is coming from inside the back of the sacrum and also passing out to the hip joint. And piriformis is also not very far away from the pelvic floor. So it's it's humans that have divided it up. Um, uh, That's what we like to do, love to give things um, names, separate names. But actually, in terms of their function, they very much work together. Um, And uh, so it's all about dynamic control around our our pelvis um, and our hips. So, Um, Those are all the muscles and of course we have our big sciatic nerve um, that comes out of um, the greater sciatic foramen, passes underneath piriformis mostly, can do other things Um, but I think that we thought last week that probably actually it's more what you do with it not what you've got Um, and then it goes over the top of the gemelli and obturator internus and then passes down into the back of the leg and of importance Um, I just want you to think about where their sciatic nerve goes. So it's going to come out of the greater sciatic foramen. It's going to come down here and then it's going to pass very close to the ischial tuberosity. Um, And so we've got lots of areas where potentially their sciatic nerve could get irritated. And bearing in mind, the sciatic nerve actually comes from the lumbar plexus. So it comes from these little yellow nerves that are sticking out here. So they go inside, then they pass outside and then run down the back of the leg. Um, So... Just because someone has sciatic pain doesn't mean that it's coming from something in the bum. So just like last week, we talked about if you have a pain in the bum, particularly if it's neural. because And we'll talk about, well, I suppose now we can say that neural might be a pain that starts in the gluteal region, but passes down the leg and actually can go as far as the foot. Um, so if you have one of those pains, one of the the job that, that Ion will do, anema will do, is to work out, is it coming from something inside the buttock? Is it coming from something outside the buttock Um, and is therefore is it coming from, for example, the lumbar spine or is it coming from something further down the leg? Um, And um, so I'm going to just ask Ema if there's anything else she wants to say about what we've talked about so far and then maybe we can talk about our case.
1: No, no, I think you summed that up beautifully and launched
2: us straight into where we need to go. Fantastic. All right. Anything else you wanted to ask or say, Matt, before I dive into our, our case?
0: I was just interested, Well, than I just didn't want to gloss over too quickly. You had a little go at the idea that you said humans like to separate everything and kind of put that anatomy there and that's there. But yeah. it seemed like you were making a point by saying it's not as neatly separated as we see in the books. Could you just mention oh, a little bit of why, what the implications of that are, and where we oh, might be well, going wrong?
2: I mean, massive implications. You could t- uh, talk about this with um, So particularly surgeons talking about the rotator cuff or thinking about glute med and glute min as they attach to the greater trochanter from a human perspective we love to divide those tendons up into different groups and so glute min and glute med different muscles they come from different places and they attach via their tendon to let's say the great greater trochanter but when you actually get there surgically they actually are quite difficult to divide up from you know if you're looking at the tendons there's not an easy way to divide them up particularly around the rotator cuff actually supra and infraspinatus are quite difficult to to decide you can go back to the muscle fibers but actually once you get to the insertion um there's very little differentiation in the in the tendon tissue and so therefore we have as humans we love we've loved to divide things up into to different bits but it's very rarely one thing let's say there's an injury it can cross boundaries and um humans love to think in black and white binary or, or very, um, yes, uh, rigid thinking, but actually we need to perhaps think more in, and, and you know, yes. Yeah, so we need to think more globally and think about, uh, in the same way as someone wants to move, they're not going to go, right, I'm going to use my glute max now to, to move in a forwards direction. They're going to use the muscles that they have available in order to un- achieve an outcome. Um, and so, um, uh, I think anatomy is, I shouldn't, I shouldn't downplay anatomy. I think anatomy is extremely important and it really helps with diagnosis. But at the same time, it's really important to be aware that us dividing things up isn't necessarily um, helpful from a recovery or function point of view. Um, And yeah, uh, I think that's the takeaway message
0: that's a very uh, healthy I mean, message and we've heard that. it a few times oh sorry you No, no no
1: just to add to that so from exactly as what ron is saying from a diagnostics and things but also from a rehab perspective i certainly treat the rotator cuff as a as a whole do you know what i mean as in when we are loading and when we are um, especially when we're doing functional movements and that's a huge thing a huge part of um of my practice anyway i i try and not i think of the complex or the the group of muscles that maybe does a particular movement i'm certainly not thinking i'm only loading one muscle so it's something that's then carried through even when we go into the rehab sector we keep that idea of let's not pigeonhole things and focus on one thing we're looking at the whole um the whole part of it and how it moves and what muscles are moving it together
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. It's lovely. And it's just you're saying it. and I'm just thinking I need to give a shout out to James Earls of Born to Walk because a lot of his functional courses and things are retraining therapists to kind of turn the binoculars around rather than learning all the intricate details and how they all fit together. Eventually, it should be the other way around. Let's see how people move. And then once we understand that, then break it down, maybe to the Mm -hmm. the individual bits, a total reversal of how anatomy is traditionally taught. So it's really interesting to hear you guys kind of support that idea. Right. I've detracted you from the the story of what happened today. So apologies for that. Let's get back on track.
2: Um, Yes. So we had a I'm not going to give the exact details of the patient because I I never like to do that so that they're not identifiable. But essentially, this is a 30 to 35 year old guy, very well muscled um, and um, they are military. And uh, they presented with um, or they were referred to us by their physiotherapist with sciatic pain. Um, and, um, yes. And so they, they, their history is that they were, um, taking part in a circuit training session and they were doing some sprints and they felt something go in their leg or around the bum region. Essentially they, they did, they were a bit non-specific, but they said, I thought I felt something go. And then they weren't, They stopped doing the training and because um, they thought something wasn't wrong, uh, wasn't right. Um, and then but but didn't present to anyone medical because there wasn't a huge amount of discomfort. Um, and uh, so they just stopped that training session. And then during the night, they woke up with significant pain that went all the way down from their buttock down to their uh, posterior ankle associated with sensory symptoms. So pins and needles and numbness um and essentially although they have improved so that pins and needles and numbness has gone they um then have had this um intermittent leg pain ever since which presents itself in a sciatic way i.e they've got pain that starts in the buttock region and goes down the back of the hamstring and then goes down through the calf and goes down to the back of the ankle Uh, as i said their sensory symptoms have resolved um and um um the key kind of findings from the history were that um, aggravating factors were um, prolonged sitting, so sitting for longer than half an hour, um, uh, long driving um, and running. Running was also an aggravator, but essentially if they hadn't aggravated it running, then they were able to walk pain-free. And I can't quite remember, Ima can correct me, I think they said that their worst pain was something like eight out of ten, but that yes i think that was right and that was if they really pushed it with their running um or if they sat on uh, for too long and just persisted to sit without moving but on average they could be pain free they could have zero out of ten pain um and um yep so no red flags uh no neural symptoms uh no night sweats no weight loss uh they were well in themselves um and, but they were on actually, and I'd forgotten this, Ema, they were taking a reasonable amount of um, pain relief in terms yeah. of they were taking amitriptyline and cocodamol. Um, so amitriptyline is a medication for nerve pain. Um, and um, yes, I think those are the key things from the history. Anything else I've forgotten, Ema, that you think
1: would be worth Yeah, so I think that was just the one thing that kind of also, so you can already see there was quite a few differentials throwing around there, uh, differential diagnosis possible. And then he also said, I could start to run and actually when I started when I was in pain then I I wasn't in pain and then but that evening and the next day I was in eight out of ten pain so suddenly we were like okay there's a few things going on here sorry so that was the only thing to add
2: yeah um so immediately I'm sitting here thinking well this doesn't sound like standard sciatica so for me when someone presents with um A nerve pain that comes from the back, I would say that um, nine times out of 10, they say, I was lifting something in the gym, and I felt something go in my back. And then a few days later to a week later, I developed pain in my leg, or my bum, or whatever their neurological symptoms are. That is a sort of classical history for a kind of disc prolapse with nerve impingement type symptoms or chemical, you know, whatever you want to call that kind of um, Neural pain that you get related to a disc injury. So he didn't describe that at all. And so immediately I'm thinking, right, he had this from sprinting. And so sprinting. um, And we can all, you know, even I would imagine that everybody thinks, well, sprinting, what do they injure? They injure hamstrings. Um, And that's what was immediately going through my head. And I was thinking, well, so he's got sciatic pain, but he did it from sprinting. So I'm thinking it could be from the bum. It could be from the hamstrings. Um, so I asked him about bruising, I asked him about swelling. He said there were, hadn't been any. Um, okay, so um, so immediately I'm already thinking, I'm not quite sure that this ties up with a disc prolapse, which is what the referrer had considered this was and was thinking for an MRI scan of their lumbar spine. So um, then in the test, so so doing objective measures or um, examination, what I really want to do was I wanted to, investigate whether or not I believed or could prove that this was coming from the back from somewhere in the bum or perhaps from the hamstrings and so uh, we did some tests To so there's a test called uh, seated slump and there's a test called the straight leg raise test um, uh, and the seated slump test which is a test of um, adverse neural tension so it puts your nerves in your lower limbs uh, under stretch was negative so he only sat there for um 60 seconds to 3 minutes and by doing this particular test it didn't bring on his symptoms and then doing the other test which is when you just lie on your back and you lift their leg up he only got symptoms on the left when we got to his leg being almost completely at 85 degrees so uh, lying flat and his his leg up to here um and for a pain that goes all the way down to his heel for me that was too Um, unprovocative for something coming from their back that's I think that's there's probably not that's not necessarily evidence-based that's just having seen a lot of people with um, problems with discs and pressing on nerves Mm -hmm. that was really not a provocative test so again it wasn't conclusive for back pain coming from a, a disc bulge and pressing on a nerve there so then I'm thinking okay so it's not that so I need to then think about the gluteal region is the nerve being compressed in the deep gluteal space is it a piriformis problem um for example Uh, and so i'm thinking okay so there's no reason why he couldn't have injured a bum muscle when he was doing his sprinting Uh, unusual but you know again anything's possible in medicine um and um let's try and find out so we looked at his hip range of motion uh looked at what his hip flexion was his hip internal rotation external rotation was and he was slightly tighter on the left side through his hip external rotators and there was Mild provocation on doing um, uh, a Faber's test, so flexion abduction, external rotation test, which is a bit like uh, uh, lying on your back and putting your leg across like a tailor, which we talked about last week. Uh, So rather than sitting up, actually being in a lying down position. Um, It was mildly provocative and we tested even against resistance. So he had to fight me internally and externally rotating his hip didn't really bring on his pain so i wasn't necessarily convinced that this was being caused by um something in his gluteal region um and i should say that i'd also done his uh, neurological test so he had no reduced power against my resistance bearing in mind i'm not um you know a weightlifter in uh, upper body weightlifter so um his power in his legs was normal his sensation was normal and his reflexes were all normal um and so um uh I've, i'm thinking i don't think it's coming from the back i don't think it's coming from the bum um and i'd had tested his hamstrings at this point but they weren't different enough at, at this point and so i think ima uh, i asked you at this
1: point if you could do some soft tissue. um you know and, uh, d- do some physio uh, testing yeah, so we just wanted to see so i am um still a huge i'm very much a huge fan of doing manual therapy in uh my sessions as a differential diagnosis And I find it really useful and we found it very useful, haven't we, Sarah? So in this situation, especially, so with any kind of reduction in range, always like getting hands on, especially through your glute med and min, which are very classically can get hypertonic and kind of can then elicit this kind of, um, sometimes they can give a pain response, so like a somatic type pain, um, but also feeling deep into the deep glutes through the glute max to see, Did it feel particularly tight? And actually, as soon as I put my hands on and had a feel around, and I'm sure everyone listening here will know what I mean, it was completely soft and it was very relaxed. There was no tone there, there was no trigger points there, there was nothing there that I could really work on to try and actually release anything off. So, I mean, he
2: still said it wasn't very nice didn't he Nice. no
1: (laughs) well it's never pleasant is it it's never pleasant but i said okay pleasant but did it reproduce your symptoms it didn't and also it didn't change the symptoms in any way so usually in the past when we've done when i've done work like this the effect is instant i can reassess their range of movement and especially into internal and external rotation and it's improved also into flexion So often, especially with a piriformis, if something I think is something in there is quite tight, releasing it off and immediately that I I feel so much easier. This was not the case with this gentleman.
0: I just want to take take a quick break because I can hear, particularly Nikki Mansfield and Becky Carroll's minds turning over. I can hear the cogs turning around. I'm interested, as we have got some people listening live, just write some stuff on the comments. It's in the safe. No one's going to see this part from couple of thousand downloads but just it'd be interesting at this point because I'm sitting here thinking great tick I would have done that yes we've done the provocation test we've done the resistance test we've checked the glute we've checked the hamstring we've checked the slum test so I'm sure that you guys in the live lounge are thinking I'm doing all this so what's I'm interested if you guys whilst they're talking could type some stuff of what you think could be going on we've got a wonderful case history and it's given me a lovely idea for future episodes just case history episode it's marvelous so particularly you know you guys in here in the live lounge write some thoughts down. Okay. Let us know what you're thinking it could be given on the information you've had so far, because it'd be interesting for these, for our guests to see what you guys are thinking it could be. Okay. Don't let me down now. Talking to you, Nikki and Becky particular. Right. Sorry. Just wanted to put that out there. Yes. That's fine. Go for it. um,
2: So, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking also, I couldn't believe that we had this patient in front of us and I was still thinking it's got to be from the back because we, because almost all our patients with this type of symptom with sciatic type pain, it comes from a lumbar disc prolapse. And I was thinking, it it can't be coming from the bum or from anywhere else because we're doing a podcast later <laughs> on buttock pain. And I was thinking, so it must be from the back. And yet, um, everything was telling me it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so um, I'm thinking, well, I I re- we tested everything, hadn't we? It really yeah. didn't feel like it was coming from the gluteal region. So I was thinking. Well, we've tested the hamstrings against my resistance, but we haven't tested the hamstrings. Uh, bearing in mind, he hasn't got any pain on walking. We haven't tested them doing something a bit harder. Mm. And although we did do one other test before we went out and tested, that's only because it's easier to do an ultrasound scan before it is to go to the gym. Um, so, um, do you want to describe the testing that we did in the gym?
1: <clears throat> oh, yeah. So, well, before we even went out, I said, "Well, let's oh, do. Right. Let's do. You know." you know, deadlifting movement. So with a straight knee. So the, the best way to stress your proximal hamstring is actually to compress your tendon so you have a flexion, so you keep the knees extended and you bend forward through the trunk. So that is the highest stress you could ever put through, you know, a hamstring tendon. And that's kind of your later stage rehab. So I was like, well, let's just see how he goes with that. And actually that brought on his symptoms. But what, again, it's buttock, and down into the back of the leg, so it's like right, okay. So if I bias, then I tried. To, so you can slip one foot forward um, in the same position. So where they're literally just bending forward, but one foot is slightly more forward to bias that side. Again, didn't make that much of a difference. So I was like, I don't think this is enough load. So at that point, as Sarah said, we then. Do you want us to talk about the scanner? Do we want to talk about when we went out? Because I then was ideally thinking, I'd love if we had you know get him in prone and check his hamstring stretch hamstring curl through range because then the beauty of something like that is you can curl him up so you check his concentric and eccentric loading and you can incrementally go up and see so and compared to the side because this guy was strong so ultimately it's not weakness that was the problem we just needed to find his pinch point or find was there a difference or an asymmetry um and equally if you ha- if you don't have that in your clinics you can use you know leg weights you can use thicker bands so you can also use a band so i would loop lots of bands around different colors and it's not as clear an objective marker, but you get more of an idea of what resistance they can tolerate so we did that do you want me to give the results there or shall we go on to what you found no i think
2: i think that's yeah i think if we uh, but although nikki has um um
0: should we don't want Nikki put here we go yeah. bring this up. so if people listen to the podcast you can't see this but it's on the screen so there's another reason to come along next week But Nikki Mansfield has said I'd be getting him to replicate his triggering movements and observing what else is happening along a longer chain and as sitting is provocative observing his movement in and out of that position
2: yeah so the trouble with the sitting which i and I absolutely agree that's a that's a a great shout <clears throat> is that actually it took half an hour almost for his Symptoms to come on when he was sitting. So um other people where it comes on quicker, and sometimes obviously we see people and they're sitting like this because they don't mm-hmm. want to be sitting on the bit that hurts. So I, I think that's a really good shout. Uh, so what was that? He
0: wasn't uncomfortable initially sitting so down. He, he, wasn't... he
2: described to us, and you'd have to remind me, Emma, but I'm sure he said it takes it take it can take a while for it half to come hour. Okay.
1: Yeah, minutes of sitting at his desk at work for him to then feel like he had to stand up
0: is this yeah. a big guy with a lot of buttock with a lot of tissue there a lot of muscle in front of it yeah? only
1: muscle really muscle yeah. there was no yeah. no adipose tissue there you look like muscle. a sprinter
0: yes <laughs> um nikki has followed up if i could just read that out here nikki's on the ball now to see if other areas along that chain are not pulling their weight their ranges of motion not contributing appropriately to the overall range of movement.
1: So I, I think the important thing with that is that what Dr. Rosin says—that's so a really good point—and that's actually something like we do in every um, session. So at the start of the session, what we do is we look at their quick functional tests and get see how they're moving, see if they're asymm- asymmetrical, what they're—you know—what the glutes are doing in particular. So they do a single leg dip, they do on both sides. We see what their control is like. He had absolutely no problems doing that. He was really well balanced. He had excellent control. He'd lovely depth. He had no issues. And then it was the same in his squatting, just a normal squat, had no issues. Um, we got him into a lunge, he had no issues, he had lovely control, there was no Trent sign. So the one glute wasn't having to work stronger than the other, which is kind of one of the more common most common things I see. Um, and that then, when I so if you were to get someone in a split squat position load them up on the side the opposite side to what you're loading and you put a weight in their hand, and suddenly that would bring on their symptoms so then that's also a really good treatment exercise that i use in that situation so but they had nothing like that so that was the other thing this was just very specific very localized on someone who was very strong and very fit
0: Gary's come back with a good question as well. Just in case we've missed something in the in the specifics of how it happened. When you said he was accelerating, wasn't he sprinting? So it's a fast yes. speed, powerful <clears throat> hip extension. Um, was there? What was the direction? Did he say whether he was going forward or cutting, or was it? You...
2: So actually, and I think that's a brilliant question. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't ask any further on that. I have to say, um, because and I and uh, I think probably in hindsight that would have been a nice thing to to have asked. Um, uh, i don't think it has changed um what's happened and the and, and it all and it did just the sprinting already brought us to the um the correct structure um mm-hmm. i think in the end but um you're absolutely right um uh, and you alluded to the fact that it's history 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 um uh and um it's always there the clue is always there in the history and and so if we'd had to scratch our heads any further. I would go with Gary's, go back and look and see what it was at the first thing that caused his symptom. Um, Yeah.
0: OK, right.
2: So um, um, just last thing before, um, because what we also are very lucky to have is we have an ultrasound machine in our clinic. So we can look at structures uh, immediately in the clinic. But Becky has um, said, what about gluteal bursitis? Um, So we talk about greater trochanteric pain syndrome these days. Um, so GTPS, because there's more than one structure at the greater trochanter. So if you have that, that bone at the side of your, your leg uh, at the top, so that's your greater trochanter, and that is where glute min and mead attach, And glute max passes over the top. Um, and um, just in front of that, TFL passes over as well, tensor fascia lata. Um, And so you get gluteal, or rather you get, you can have, bursal effusions so fluid in a bursa or or bursitis at the lateral hip but that is lateral hip pain it wouldn't give you um pain at the back and it would it won't give you sciatic pain um and um just to uh, because it's really important gluteal bursitis in my experience is actually really rare so greater trochanteric bursitis true effused inflamed bursitis is Uh, Something that people who have with rheumatological inflammatory conditions. Um, uh, If people do have fluid in their bursa, it is because their tendons next door are either torn or annoyed. So they have tendinopathy. And um, in my opinion, the bursa has some fluid in it because the tendons are annoyed next door. And they just so happen that the bursa just happens to get a little bit inflamed as well and produces some fluid. But the bursa is not the problem, it's the fact that the tendons are overloaded and then you can see on ultrasound and you can see on MRI scan that is there is bursal fluid. So um, uh, I see loads of um, lateral hip pains in an ultrasound clinic that I do for the NHS Um, and it is the tendons I'm looking at. And if there's fluid in the bursa, unless they have an inflammatory condition, generally that's just secondary. Um, and I would say that 95% of cases of um, lateral gluteal overload, um, uh, so glute men and glute med overload, don't have a bursitis. Um, and Becky Sned said, "Ischial bursitis, fantastic because <laughs> um, uh, that that means we've I've been able to get on my hobby horse, <laughs> and also we can say that yes, the ischial bursa is a possibility because it is." Uh, still within the buttock uh, so it's just another so bursa is just a little fluid filled sack that normally doesn't have a lot of fluid in it They're, they exist to allow our stuff to move nice and smoothly over each other which is why we have them over our uh, elbows we have them over our bits on our bottom where we want to sit we have them at the tendons on our lateral hips so that so that everything moves beautifully smoothly um and as in if you whack your elbow um you know you can get an electron bursitis you can get them on your knees so you can get a pre bursitis you can get all sorts of bursitis and it's because they can get um the one the electron bursitis is a true overload it's a traumatic overload of the uh of the bursa where you've given it a right wall whack um but um yes so ischial bursitis so there is an ischial bursa so the ischium uh, so that's your ischial tuberosity and i think becky's getting in the right place because this is where your hamstring tendons attach and the ischial burst is just there so anything else you want to say Emma? no no i think we've like a drum roll
0: yeah oh uh, no I'm really i'm racking my brain i'm trying it's, to think from what you've said very exciting well end. you've alluded to the fact that maybe there's something we've missed in the buttock region we've looked at the kind of like the glute max we've looked at the Um, the hamstring in terms of what's producing that sudden extension of the hip but it sounds like there's something else we've missed if we're looking at the case history but
2: yeah so we haven't missed it no um it's just that it's subtle so in fact uh looking at his um hamstring tendons on ultrasound it was quite clear that his um his left hamstring tendons were significantly thickened so particularly glute um sorry particularly um semi membranous. mine's gone completely numb so we're talking approximately uh, yes so uh-huh. the hamstring tendons t-
0: <laughs>
2: yeah yeah the hamstring tendons attach really interestingly at the ischial tuberosity so um uh you have three hamstring tendons and they attach like a suction cup like that onto your ischial tuberosity so if that's the ischial tuberosity they're like that with both of your hamstrings are tendons attached like that. And on the outside here is semimembranosus. I should be like that. And then here is the conjoint tendon of um, biceps femoris and semitendinosus. Now you're thinking, well, if you're good at your anatomy, you're thinking, why is semimembranosus on the outside when it's a medial hamstring? So it goes down the back of the medial leg and ends up on the inside of your leg on the back of the tibia. Um Whereas biceps femoris is a lateral one. And that's because, like lots of the tendons in our body, they come up and then they they twist just at the end. And that's because that twisting thing is what is one of the things, like the, the Achilles does it as well, is a good way of storing energy if you have fibers that slowly twist uh, down. And then you get a, a lovely coil effect of your, your tendon. So, so, yep, so they come up. And what can happen is that uh, if you're going to tear them off the attachment, semimembranosus can peel off like this or you can have a detachments a bit like that or the whole thing can detach off like that um, but his was very much attached but particularly semimembranosus was much thicker um, and the sciatic nerve we could see that it was just next door um, mm-hmm. so it's very hard on ultrasound to see that there's any particular problem uh, so the literature talks about, you know, if you have a, a tendinopathy or you have some kind of tear that you might get adhesions or entrapment of nerves. Um, that's extremely unusual to be able to actually see anything like that on ultrasound. You can sometimes see, particularly in very superficial nerves, you might see that a nerve goes along and then gets compressed. So, for example, the median nerve in carpal tunnel syndrome. So you might see you've got a lovely fat nerve and then like that as it goes under the flexor retinaculum. Um so you, we couldn't see anything like that at the sciatic nerve. And it's quite difficult as well, because it's a deep structure. Sound uh, gets, um, um, uh, it, it, you can't see so well when things are deeper. Um, and so uh, the picture just gets more fuzzy. So it's harder to see. So I'd done kind of my bit at this stage. We kind of felt like we had a diagnosis. So we had probably an acute proximal hamstring tendinopathy or partial tear, which has resulted in significant thickening of his hamstring tendon and has annoyed the sciatic nerve just next door and he's still getting pain um because when he's sitting on that area it's probably taking up extra space or it's probably aggravating the sciatic nerve as well as sitting on that that hamstring tendon so um uh, i'm going to hand over to Ema now to sort of talk about perhaps what we did unless we want to so nikki's asked a question about um
0: Nikki whether it's Look, is that yeah so i
2: couldn't yeah. make is it hurt that... but Ema did manage to take
1: it so this is the thing the doctors are brilliant right but you see to get really stuck in you need a physio and you need a sports this uh, um you need a sports sports tissue um a specialist because we know how to put pressure on and i think it was mm-hmm. a question of that was the beauty of the ultrasound is that um you could see exactly where the point was. So directly under the probe was just a question of applying pressure. And so, if you know your anatomy and you know where you are, and we can actually see the pressure going on to that area, and it reproduces symptoms.
0: Really, so, you made him jump.
1: Yeah. So, and he was like, "That's it. That's my. That's my pain." Mm. And
0: so, just out of interest, because it's it's just burning in my mind. So, initially, you would have tried to palpate the issue of tuberosity with like the fingertips and put some pressure in there and it wasn't provoking it but is it because you just had to change and go around a little bit away from where you were poking deeper. before i just had just to, to go it. give it a yeah. little bit more so,
1: and um okay I, I a little trick i actually I, it's really not very pleasant for the vision but I actually use my knuckle really?
0: yeah so yeah, i nice. use my
1: knuckle because actually with a finger you can get the same amount of pressure it's not very comfortable and whereas it, it's just a rounder structure destruction it was a you know yeah. you're able to get deeper um and i think you know with it was just reaffirming what we already thought but what's really interesting about this and i think is that actually essentially there were three three different kind of pathologies going on or two different and that was affecting the third so as dr Rollins said you know it sounds like from the original injury there was a potential tear that's that when he pulled up when he had Mm -hmm. been sprinting and then what he's left with he continued to to load and because he was strong, he was able to keep going, because you do have two other hamstrings that you can mm. join in and help out. But what happened was that it's just this one is just not able to deal with the load that it's been put on it. So exactly as Nikki said, yes, he'd almost he was pretend he was presenting as like and I said this to Sarah as we were walking out, as tendinopathic. So that pain when they start the exercise, when he starts to run. And then as he ran, he actually that eased off because with tendons, when they warm up, they feel a lot better. And then afterwards, if they've been loaded too much, they will let you know about it. And it's very painful. And that's one of the classic things I use in my treatment, which brings me on to kind of how I would load him. So the plan then for him was actually, this was unfortunately, soft tissue he was past that point at this stage and it's about trying to reduce so he's already able to tolerate quite a high level of loading and so it's about finding a level of loading that is enough to stimulate a change within the tendon but without annoying it to the point where it flares more because where you saw what Dr Rons was able to demonstrate on um, uh, ultrasound is that they were so close to each other that if there was any kind of a, you know, localised inflammation or annoyance of the tendon, the chances are that was what it was annoying us out there. And so with rehab, that's something you'd have to really think about as well. So again, I think I spoke about earlier, I would work him first, not getting him flexing from the trunk and keeping a straight knee. I would either work one way or the other. So speaking to his... um, physio working a lot into sliders so where you're working kind of the tendon eccentrically which is something he would really be able to tolerate um, and working that first and then but also loading him like I said prone with hamstring curl because he can tolerate that and you can then decide whether you want to do fast and then slow eccentric loading going back because with a tendon it's you know you start by um releasing it off so we start and we start then isometrically we don't stretch them so we go isometrics to start which is basically the muscle doesn't move through range it's just loading at a point um that can cause a little bit of discomfort during it but afterwards they should almost have like an analgesic effect and then you start to load them through range and then you load them eccentrically where the muscle's lengthening but with a heavier load and that's kind of your end stage. So he's actually bypassed the first two. He's already gone through the first t- two stages. So for him, it's really, I think I'll be working on more heavy eccentric loading because actually his hamstrings are pretty good, weren't they, Sarah? So there was like a five yes. kilogram deficit between both sides, which isn't massive. And this is this is what was really interesting and something that we see a lot of is that although the deficit isn't a lot, and actually he is very strong, and Sarah alluded to this last week, it's not it's about what the load that those structures can take relative to what he wants them to do. And running up hills and sprinting is just something he wants to do. And that is the thing that will annoy a proximal hamstring tendon the most. And it is the thing that actually we will have to take them off certain types of running so it will be like can you run on flat without pain and without Mm. a reaction so it's all about load management as well as loading if that makes sense
0: yeah definitely i was gonna say you've answered the questions on my mind i'm I'm thinking if he's in the military and training the military love any kind of hip Mm. flexion whether it's burpees or running uphill or deep squats and all the things Mm -hmm. which are going to cause that potential you know um, compression against the issue tuberosity so you've had to kind of give him a little Free ticket, a free pass for quite a lot of the training you'd normally do, haven't you? I imagine.
1: Yeah, so we, within the military, they're very good at protecting the people that, you know, that that work for them. So, and it's, they don't like being kind of protected they want to keep going mm. keep going so we work with the population would you research that needs to be reined in a lot mm-hmm. of the time and so actually that's their so they can st- we have something you know called an appendix nine where basically it says exactly what they can and can't do because for mm-hmm. him he can still do an awful lot like he'll still be in the gym lifting if that's fine you know in a certain way so you don't want people looking going but he said uh, you know he's been taken off pt but yet he can mm. be in the gym so it's about understanding and explaining to the patient so then he can explain to his chain of command well actually i can't do this but i can do this you know and keeping them fit so keeping them on a bike for example that's something that he could continue to do on a walk bike to stay fit and strong
0: so is is adherence in your population if you're working with with military quite good they they're pretty good at taking orders i imagine it's quite an important part of the job does that mean that you haven't got to worry so much about them not doing the exercises or not doing exactly what you said or or can that still happen
1: uh, hmm. no that can still happen we're all they're, they're still human just like us and so this is something really? that i um i think we spoke about off air as well is that i have a belief that anything more than six exercises and that's it you've lost them They're, they're going to look at their program and just walk away and be like Absolutely. I don't, Mm -hmm. I do not have time for this. I try and design any program I give to be 20 to 30 minutes maximum. Um, I try and find out more about their own, their lives and what they do and when they're busy. And if they're, for example, if they're a mum and they have, you know, I, you know, they've swimming lessons and then they get home in the evening, they're exhausted. You know, you have to think this has to be, she has to be able to do this in her front, in her front room when the kids are in bed, 20 minutes job done so it's all about being creative with the exercises i'm not you know i know in the military we have huge brilliant facilities where there's lots of machines and stuff and when you have access to a gym that's wonderful but i think we also they also deploy a lot so there's things that they have to be able to do when they're deployed they could be in you know salisbury Plain for four weeks and so i try and think of using things like bands and using things like body weight you know uh, and that's really important So it's trying to be creative, but I always say short programs, short amount of time, and you will keep them.
0: Fantastic. Great messages there. Um, We've got some wonderful questions coming through now. You've totally warmed these people up. Um, Gary Benson um, has says, were were there changes to his normal fitness regime in the weeks preceding the injury or was this just one of those things that happened? Is it possible via making to ascertain the age of thickening? So a couple of questions there. Do you know, was it... When you looked at his history now, you know what it was. Was there signs that maybe he was overdoing it? Was there a change or something or a lesson to be learned?
2: So um, despite having an hour, we didn't get an opportunity to to, oh, <laughs> to, today,
0: to, <laughs> to, get,
2: to establish that. So we're probably so excited that we, we found a cause in the end uh, and about the fact that we had a case for the podcast. Um, but um, I think it's a really valuable point. Um, and actually, it's really interesting. So if you're thinking about tendon injuries, you've got the um, – you've got a no- – you've got – You've got a normal tendon that ends up with an acute tear because you have gone beyond its capacity or you might have a degenerative tendon um, who, uh, which then um, would be more easier, more, more. Yes, Um, it would be easier to injure because it doesn't have uh, that that capacity that you would have perhaps when you were younger and so who so he was between 30 and 35 so you would might say well actually he's still a bit young for a degenerative tear now we have to bear in mind that sadly in the world today there are people who are younger who are getting more degenerative problems because they're either deconditioned or they have metabolic type uh, syndrome so people who have very high uh, non-lean body mass uh, and who don't move very much um, are more likely to develop tendon problems um, obviously at lower loading levels Um, Having said that, um, basically, whatever your capacity is or the tendon capacity that you have, um, if you overstep the the capacity, then it's possible to get a tendon injury. And it's it's like going beyond its um, strain limit, essentially. Uh, And so um, I suspect that in his case, this particular um, thing, because it was military circuit training session, And he told us, he did say to us actually, because I did ask him what he wanted to get back to. He said he wanted to get back to doing some running and he wanted to get, and I said sprinting and he was like, no, I want to do longer slow running. So in my opinion, he looks like a sprinter, but in fact, he prefers to do three or four runs a week of, you know, 20, um, sorry, yeah, 20 to 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. So more on, absolutely more on the endurance side. So there's a good chance that he has fast twitch fibers that are capable of, doing some fast movement, but his tendon, it went beyond what he was capable of coping with. Um, and so I suspect this was an acute, uh, sudden overload of his proximal hamstring tendon on a, on a without a background of previous degenerative change. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very difficult to prove that and you can't really see that on ultrasound. Ultrasound is, uh, um, you would only, if you'd scanned it beforehand, uh, be able to... Um, to, both, to understand that
0: both gary and nikki kind of combine a question here the thickening you mentioned is are you able to, to to kind of work out whether that thickening was the result of a slow degenerative process or was that the normal thickening you'd see in the time line that it occurred um from from when that injury was
2: so i suspect that he's had a as i say he's had this sudden acute overload and he's obviously not torn it off the bone so it's not an avulsion So therefore, it suggests to me if it's a partial tear. So when we have tears, uh, obviously you can have a full thickness tear, which would be like that. And if you have a partial tear, you can either do, um, this is a bad example, you can either do kind of like that, Mm -hmm. or you could do kind of like that. And that would still be a partial tear, but it would kind of be like an intra-substance tear as opposed to like half the structure is gone. Um, I suspect he had this kind of overstretching injury substance tear um and i only speculating really because of course but nevertheless the the tendons were all attached there was no gap there was no kind of damaged section of tendon and this is interesting actually because of course he said he didn't bleed um and tendons obviously not very vascular so that it's very unlikely that he had any muscular or myotendinous junction involvement because if you injure a hamstring it bleeds a lot and it will bleed and it will go down the back of your leg and end up down the back of your knee cause gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, so I suspect this was tendon injury and I'm going to call it a partial tear, but that's because it wasn't a whole tear and it wasn't a whole tear and it wasn't no tear. So therefore the only thing between a whole tear and, a, and no tear is a partial tear. It's just that in our minds, that kind of means half the tendon when what we probably mean, it's like an overstretching injury in this particular case. And then when we do something like that, our tendons will get thick because, there will be a, an inflammatory response of sorts that will invite new blood vessel growth. Uh, there will be swelling. There will be a new kind of collagen matrix that is not organized. And so what we see is we see on ultrasound, you see a darker tendon that has a less fibrillar structure. So normally tendons have lots of really bright stripes and a tendon that is tendinopathic or overloaded would often be darker and have less stripes. Um, and it will be thick so the signs on ultrasound are thickening Mm. loss of echoes so hypoechoic so it's darker uh, loss of fibrillar pattern and then sometimes there will be some calcification that there wasn't in this case and Mm. sometimes vascularity it's very difficult to see vascularity related to a hamstring because of the depth but Mm. in an achilles you could often very clearly see vascularity related to an overload um yeah
0: absolutely fascinating i'm conscious of the time um But I'm just uh, I wouldn't say this to the patient because it could like set him up for a bit of fear. But knowing that one of the kind of precursors for injury is historical injury, does the approximation of his sciatica near that hamstring mean that he's potentially he could reinjure himself and have those same symptoms again? Is that anatomy going to change? Is it kind of the way he's built now that he's going to be susceptible to that? Or would you would do you think it's possible for him not to suffer from it again?
1: I think if we could do, I, I mean, if you don't mind me answering. Sorry. No, I was going to let you have a go. <laughs> yeah, so I think when, I think what we are working on the premise is that actually that, you know, the tear is historical. Now what we're left with is the tendinopathy. And I think he keeps annoying his tendon. And I think that is what then flares his symptoms where his sciatic nerve, sciatic nerve is actually fine. There's nothing wrong with it. And his, mm. his anatomy is pretty normal. But with a tendon, you can change how as long as the tendon doesn't become annoyed and become more inflamed and actually we mm. can settle it down then the chances are we can control his symptoms like he has almost done that to a degree himself by by keeping going because we know tendons they love load it's just about the optimal loading and he was just really keen to get back running and so mm. i think we're hopeful, hopeful that by just getting his loading right, by getting that increasing his load tolerance within that tendon, that will change the thick. You know, it will it will change the reaction of the tendon, which is essentially what is irritating the sciatic nerve. Don't so want add anything,
2: wow. you No, know, I was just going to say, as a, as a long-term Achilles tendon sufferer. I've managed to piss off the, excuse me, I've managed That's to it. annoy the Sorry, YouTube, the, we will <laughs> not kids anymore.
0: A doctor as well, would you believe
2: <laughs> Outrage. Um, uh I've managed to annoy my sural nerve, which is just next door. And you get all sorts of strange pains down into my foot. It's just my Achilles. And I compress the, the area and I'll get referred pain down my leg. So if nerves are next to things that are inflamed or uh, overloaded, they will, they, will, they will hurt.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, look, it's, it's nine, it's gone nine o'clock. And I think Claire Walker sums it up nicely here. Claire Walker said, I can listen for another hour. I know it's, it's something I want to do in future. Actually, it's been lovely hearing two people of your experience, especially the way you've worked together and shown that wonderful interdisciplinary kind of care that patients and clients really need Um, just to hear you sounding and and talking about things has been really effective, I think. Um, So I thank you for that. Unfortunately, we haven't got another hour, Claire, I'm afraid. But you never know. Well, no, I would say let's have them both back to uh, do another case history later. But one of them is, yeah, but we won't talk about that anymore. No, let's not. Maybe with your you, Dr. Emo, we'll talk after. We have
1: plenty of historical cases because I'm with Claire. I love talking about the SI joint and it's something I love to treat. So, you know, it's something that I, but it's yeah, just such good. a massive topic that we just thought mm. the beauty of this case study was that it kind of talked about, lots of differentials that it could have Mm. been and that's quite a nice thing to then be able to talk about little bits and how then it would be managed so and there's no talk
0: of kind of a a fascial anatomy train or anything causing that symptoms traveling down the posterior leg there's none of that kind of i'm just stirring a few people up in case listen to the podcast now because there is a danger there's so many of these ideas Oh well in that case the reason it's traveling down to the achilles is obviously it's a fascial thing and and people can go down rabbit holes i'm not saying fascia won't be involved but i know a a large proportion of maybe people who get into soft tissue therapy could be attracted as soon as you said it traveled all the way down then people are going to look for that confirmation bias thing i probably should that i'm probably going to annoy a lot of the fascists out there but um i'm just interested fascists, that, that the yeah fascist. the fascists yeah spelt <laughs> fashionists um i'm just doing that to stir it up and get some fashionistas more, yeah exactly <laughs> but it was interesting that fascia didn't even come in your discussion i've just done that to stir people up i might even not put it in the podcast but anyway moving on swiftly um no i really appreciate it really really fascinating and and i thank you both for your time um gary benson here has um commented thanks for the answer dr Sir. very interesting consideration for fast switch vipers mm-hmm. not being trained optimally with endurance type activity which could lead to potential weakness in ballistic activity yeah again listening to the patient you picked it up on the fact that he said he wanted to go back to running kind mm-hmm. of longer distances and yet here he was being not well, kind of forced as part of the exercise to do a sudden sprint, which sounds like is not his normal activity by choice, by preference. So it could be something his body wasn't prepared to do. Yeah, very nice. Uh, Becky Cow says, Thank you all. Great session. <laughs> Great session. Yeah, we can call it a session. Yeah, that was like a session. It was very good. Um, and Glenn Murphy says, um How quick has that gone? It's been <laughs> fabulous. Thank you, ladies. Wonderful. Thank you, people, for joining us live, as well as um, our guests for giving up their time. This is why I love. Filming these, filming these things. Yeah, filming these things live. Um, I think it comes out in the podcast as well. Um, with people asking questions live and thinking things through. So I appreciate everybody. I appreciate the guests. I appreciate the people who come along on a Tuesday evening at eight o'clock to ask the questions to the guests and also for everyone listening to the podcast. Um, it's, it's lovely to have that three. Activity happening at the same time. Wonderful. That was put very eloquently, wasn't it? So thank you. Um, I'm gonna sign off the live lounge now. If Emo and Sarah, if you could hang around just so I can say thanks to you properly once I've closed it down. Um, what are we doing next week, people? Just to let you know. Next week, next Tuesday, we fall into February, don't we? So it will be the first of um the first Tuesday of the month where we start a new session. I'll be looking forward to this. A new session called Ask Tim. And in the studio, we will have Tim Allardyce of Rehab My Patient, who will be he's offered his services to be on the chair and ask any questions which are emailed him. Those of you who are familiar with Tim Allardyce from Rehab My Patient, a wealth of knowledge. Um, he's helped so many businesses grow as well as two or three of his own. Um, he's been uh, to the Olympics. He's 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 an absolute wonderful person to have sitting, taking questions. So if you have got any questions for Tim on our new session ask tim then all you have to do is email me uh, matt at um thesta.co.uk, and we'll have some questions for tim and that'll be once a month on the first tuesday of the month um but for now thanks again to Emma acton and dr sarah rollins for such a wonderful hour thank you people
2: thanks very much for having us Thanks you
0: for having us take care and if you want to join us live we'll see you uh, next tuesday on the sports therapy association youtube channel at eight o'clock bye-bye You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.